Okay, session 14 of our modern Jewish history um, journey from the late 1800s to the formation of the state of the land. Last week we discussed the beginnings of the land of Palestine in the 1920s. We focused on the immediate years after World War I, on the idea of within the Jewish people, the split that existed both between the religious and the secular, and within the secular world, the various different approaches of how to deal with the British, we dealt with some of the beginnings of the conflict between the Jews and the Arabs and the Jews and the British, and all of that was setting the table of the, of the 1920s. What I'd like to do tonight is uh, continue that picture of what were some of the issues that were going on during the 1920s, specifically in Palestine. Now, you can't really ever get an entire decade in... Uh, in a, in a simple evening session, but just to touch on some of the major developments that happened in the land of Palestine during this particular decade, and focusing on some of them that will really continue until this day, how the, the, the ground was laid already um, during this time in a, major, in a number of major issues. The major personality that we, of course, should start with, and we've had over the years uh, entire classes on him in, uh, in other contexts, is, of course, Rav Cook. Um, Rabbi Avraham Yitzchak HaKohen Cook, who was known as the first chief rabbi, he was actually of pre-state Israel. We can't call him the first chief rabbi of Israel because he dies in 1935, uh, 13 years before the state will be founded. But he was uh, the chief rabbi of Palestine, as it was. Uh, he originally moved into the land of Israel uh, in 1904 to become the chief rabbi in Jaffa. Um, there's much to say about him. He was a larger-than-life personality. He was a genius, a gaon. He was recognized by everyone for who he was. His politics, his approach, his outlook on life was not agreed upon by all. And he was a very, very, um, he was a lightning rod kind of personality at the time in Israel. We've discussed this in the past. We'll touch about it on, again tonight in a number of different ways. Um, and he'll, he'll be the centerpiece of what we'll address tonight. A number of anecdotes and a number of things that he instituted during this particular 10-year period, uh, which still impact the land of Israel uh, today. He, together with many other, uh, several other rabbis, traveled throughout the country to try to bring the new settlers, um, the spirit of the Jewish people and its Torah. The, as we discussed last week, the, the, the Zionists who moved to the land of Israel were mostly non-religious. Uh, it, would be, it would be one thing if they were only non-religious. Most of them were purposely irreligious or heretics or, or socialists in which they wanted nothing to do with religion. Rav Cook came, uh, he was in, again in 1904, and he sees as he's there over the first couple of years what's going on, how there's a very secular flavor in the land of Israel, and he took upon himself, uh, I don't know if you say the first cure of movement, but he wanted to do cure. It wasn't just a matter of, you know, feh, those uh, secular Jews. It was... Let's bring them into the fold. What can we do to encourage them to be part of the Jewish people and its Torah? And he was very famously tolerant of the secular and the, at the time, irreligious Jews. Now, to understand where he was coming from and a little bit of the tension that that created, he was what we would call today a mystic, a Baal Kabbalah. He actually came from uh, himself, his own parents. He had a little bit of a Hasidic background, a little bit of a Litvak background. He learned in the Yeshiva in Valazhin. He was really a, a just, his mind, he was, he was a poet, he was a scholar, he was a chassid, he was a lit. he just combined it all into one person. And he saw, philosophically, he saw the return of the Jewish people, he saw their retur- return as the beginning of the Messianic era. And it was 
clear as day to him that this was a sign, it was a divine sign from heaven that the redemption, the redemptive process has begun and we therefore need to re- we embrace it and make it what it possibly can be. Um, he saw the Balfour Declaration. He happened to have been in England during the Balfour Declaration. Uh, as I'll mention in a moment, he was uh, stranded during World War I. He had left on a trip uh, during World War I, right before World War I. And when it broke out, he was in Switzerland. He was there for a couple of years and in England for a couple of years. And he was in England when the Balfour Declaration was made. And he saw that, of course, as a divine uh, providence as well, that he should be in England when this first major document uh, is announced. Um, and it wasn't just a political statement. It was, look at what's taking place in, in the world around us. Now, as we've been discussing, the actual Jews who come back were not interested in being part of this redemptive process. So the dynamics of what's going on in the land is an absolutely fascinating dynamic in which the Jews who are actually coming back are irreligious. They want nothing to do with Shabbos. They want to create, as we spoke about last week, a new Jew not interested in Torah, Shabbos, Kaddish, they don't want any of that. And then at the other, on the other hand, you have someone like Ruf Cook saying, wow, you're bringing the redemption. You're going to herald Mashiach. And they're like, what are you talking about? We're not interested in heralding Mashiach. Not only that, then you have the religious community, which always existed in the land. It was very, very small, but there's always been a religious element in the land in Israel, and it was also growing. And they looked at the secular, irreligious Jew that was moving in as the greatest threat to everything they were trying to create. And they were right. That was correct. They were the greatest threat. When the new Jew would move in and they were playing sports on Shabbos and they weren't dealing with kashas, that was the greatest temptation for the young generation growing up. Is That's what you were afraid of, keeping your kids away from the secular Jew who was moving in, who was young and strong and a farmer, and, and you wanted them to be sitting and learning, they were the greatest threat. So you have all of these things come together in which the, the, a Rav Cook sees this as redemption. The Jew himself, who's the settler, wants nothing to do with that. And the religious Jew at the time views those Jews as the biggest threat to their existence and their way of life. And that just created a, uh, a tinderbox ready to explode, as it did in many, many different uh, ways. So one of the approaches that Rav Cook, and we've quoted this many times, it's really a most, one, of the, one of the most beautiful ideas. We have the advantage, and I, I try to highlight this whenever we talk about this topic, we have the advantage of looking back a hundred years, a hundred years in history. We're talking about the, the 1920s. We're a hundred years prior. We have the advantage of hindsight, of seeing what took place. Again, had we been living in the 1920s, we would have, uh, as most of the religious world did, sided against Rav Kook because the reality was the secular Jewish um, uh, Zionist was a threat to Torah life. It was. There's, you, can't, you can't get away from that. Rav Kook was a visionary who saw this as part of the process. One of the ways that he would describe this, um, this is again, when, uh, the way that I first heard this was when, when, he discussed, when he discovered this idea, he was like dancing around the table. The Gemara Meseches Yuma asks, how was it in discussing the Beis HaMikdash, which is what many, much of the discussion of that particular tractate talks about, how did you construct the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, the place in the Beis HaMikdash which can only be entered once a year by the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur? Who built it? How did you construct such a room that has such holiness? So the Gemara says, well, it wasn't sanctified when it was being built. First you build, then you sanctify. That's the way it works. You build, and then when it is complete, 
You sanctify. You're mekadesh it. That's the way holiness works. And Rav Kook used to dance around when he discovered, when he made this connection, he said, we have to build the land first. First we're going to build, then we're going to sanctify. Similar to that idea, exactly. So therefore he said, and he saw everything that was taking place in the land of Israel, in these early years, we're going to bring a couple of examples tonight, which the religious community looked at with askance and said, this is terrible, and they weren't wrong. He looked, it as, looked at it as the start of a process, but you just have to wait until to see when it finishes. And this is one of the great complexities of life. If we had to choose now, looking back, which side would we be on? The reality in front of us was, it was a danger. It was not a great place for a religious Jew to get involved. And the truth is, we can look back 100 years later and see, look at what was built. Look at what happened by the hands of a secular, anti-religious Zionist movement. Look at the country that has been built. We're moving along. Now it's much easier for us to say, we're almost finished building, and then we'll sanctify. It's much easier for us to say that now than it was 100 years ago. But he was already saying that 100 years prior, which means that he was almost always at odds with the establishment, the religious community in Jerusalem, almost always. Rabbi Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld was his main protagonist. On a personal level, they were very close, very famously, that they were very close as friends. But politically speaking, religiously speaking, in terms of how to address this issue, they were at great odds um, and the people under them, the fanatics, as we like to say, on both sides, stirred up the pot much more than the two of them ever would have done um, on, their, uh, on their own. As, as I mentioned, he was stranded during World War I outside of the land for about four years and uh, returns in 1919 at the end of the war and is almost immediately thereafter, a little bit uh, shortly thereafter, uh, he's offered and accepts the position as the uh, Ashkenazi rabbi, rabbi of Jerusalem. Now, he's never fully accepted by the religious community, again, of Yerushalayim. Um, they, uh, again, as I mentioned, he and Rav Zunnenfeld enjoyed a very warm and respectful personal relationship, but he was just too radical in his worldview for the establishment um, at the time. Let's talk about a couple of examples about where this and how this uh, manifested itself and some of the things that he did which still continue to influence the land today. First one we'll address tonight is the creation of the chief rabbinate. So we're familiar today that there's such a thing called the chief rabbi of the land of Israel. There's a Sephardi chief rabbi, there's an Ashkenazi chief rabbi, and it's a strange, uh, it's a strange thing for most of us who are not so familiar with how it works. There's like a vote, and you sort of vote on the chief rabbi, and they're delegates, and there's politicking. It's like, what? That's the position of the chief rabbi, and what exactly does the chief rabbi do? And the Haredi world never seems to have accepted the authority of the chief rabbi. Anyway, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Well, all of that goes back to the way that it started, which was back in 1921. Rav Kook pushed for this idea of the establishment of a chief rabbi of the land of Palestine, which again, was, this is many years still before the, the state will be formally created. And he intended it to be the moral voice of the Jewish people in Palestine. There should be such a thing, again, in his visionary understanding of what's happened. There needs to be a voice of the morality of the Jewish people. Because again, the Jews who mostly are there, except for the small pockets of the religious community, are not religious. And so who's going to give the flavor, who's going to give the tam of traditional Judaism? If we leave it up to the, the secular kibbutzniks, that, that's not going to have the tam. They're going to want to create a new Jew. So he wanted there to be a position that was going to be the voice, the mouthpiece of Jewish morality in the land. However, 
Who's in control of the land at the time? It's the British. The British have been given the mandate that they're going to be there still for another 20 years. They have a principle, a concept, a position called the chief rabbi of England. And so when this idea was floated that there should be a chief rabbi in Palestine, they jumped all over. They said, perfect. Except then they took it and they made it theirs and they created it in the image of the way that it works in, uh, in England. They conformed it to that, so they turned it into a legal entity. There's an official position, an elected position of the chief rabbi, and there are delegates who vote, which means that the candidates have to know politic for the votes of the delegates. The delegates are mostly secular Jews who are completely uninterested in the religious aspect. The only aspects, whatever, whichever aspects would influence them or affect them, and uh, they're the ones who are voting, the secular, the atheist, the religious, the, the, the super-religious boycotted the whole thing. They're like, what do we need a chief rabbi for? Who's telling us there's a chief rabbi? England's telling us in Palestine that this candidate or that candidate is a chief rabbi? We have our own rabbanim. We, we don't need to have a chief rabbi. This is the rav of the town. This is the rav of the city. So you ended up with the most religious group completely ignored and were uninterested in the whole position of the chief rabbi. The secular and the atheists and the Zionists are, are voting on the chief rabbi and you end up with the quagmire that you have. Today it still exists in, in, to a degree. Uh, those living in Israel can explain it far better than I am, but all of us experience like we're trying to understand exactly the nature and the role of the chief rabbi. As a, so today it still exists. You have the Eid Haredis because the Haredim created their own organization. You have the, you have the rabbinate. Uh, things which are under the rabbinate and which still exist today, which is now all involved in politics of who's in control of Gitin, who's in control of marriage, who's in control of Kashrus. What is it? Is it a government position? Is it the, the religious decide for themselves? And you end up with, with, without even really getting into the details of it so much tonight, just acknowledging that's when it started, that's how it started, and we still see until today the mess that it is in terms of the lack of clarity of exactly what the position is and, and who, dictates, uh, who dictates what. Now, Rav Cook, because he was such a larger-than-life uh, person, so he held most of it together during his lifetime. His successor, Rav Herzog, did as well. But uh, the institution never fulfilled Rav Cook's goal to be the moral voice of the Jewish people, that the Jewish people of Palestine should look to the chief rabbinate as the moral voice. That never happened. It became a political position. Political positions are political. They're complicated. There's a lot of uh, politicking involved and money involved, and uh, it's, it's complicated. So uh, that's what it is today. Um, I've, I've mentioned many that we've, I've had a number of occasions to meet with, uh, we all were familiar with Chief Rabbi Lau, the former Chief Rabbi, the current, his son. Um, I've had a chance to, to meet with him a number of times in the various trips that we've taken. And there's a lot that the Chief Rabbi is in charge of and does. I'm not here to cast any suspicions against the, the institution, but it became a political institution with votes and delegates and politicking, and, and it uh, wasn't the vision that Rav Cook had for it when it was, uh, when it was created. Um, just to share a, an anecdote or two about uh, Rav Cook uh, during this particular time, um, so for those of you who actually have the, who are here, you have the, on uh, page three, I have... Uh, you know, one of the websites for Cook's Torah in English uh, brings a whole number of stories from a bunch of different of his books in Hebrew that they translated. Um, there was once a, uh, in one of the neighbors of Yerushalayim, a group of workers who were under pressure to uh, finish a certain job. Rosh Hashanah came. 
And so whatever pressures the workers had, the workers who were not necessarily religious anyway, they wanted to get the job done, so they were working on Rosh Hashanah. There's construction going on in Rosh Hashanah. Meanwhile, the neighborhood's a Jewish neighborhood, and the, the Jews who were there, who were more sensitive to Rosh Hashanah, were taken aback that uh, on Rosh Hashanah, there's like a certain, uh, we're in Yerushalayim on Rosh Hashanah. Like, how could they be working on Rosh Hashanah? So th- this group of, uh, of disturbed Jews went to Rav Kook to complain, to do something that all these Jewish workers on Rosh Hashanah disturbing the neighborhood. So Rav Kook sent a messenger, sent an agent to the construction site with a shofar. And his command to the agent was, gather the workers and blow shofar for them on Rosh Hashanah. As opposed to what the people who asked Rav Kook to send them wanted to yell and to scream and to take away their hammer. He said, blow shofar for them. So the fellow did. The fellow shows up. It's Rosh Hashanah afternoon, coming home from shul. They're working on the construction site. And he says, Chavra, would it be okay if we took a one-minute break to blow Rosh Hashanah? To blow shofar, it's Rosh Hashanah. Okay, no. You have to be a certain type of Jew to, uh, once a guy shows up on Rosh Hashanah with a shofar to say no. So they stop their work, they gather around, and the fellow blows shofar for them on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, now, I, I can't say for sure what exactly the reaction. The way the story is told is... So the experience of them hearing shofar on Rosh Hashanah and Yushalayim, and there they are, these Jews, was, you know, the, the secular Jew was reminded of their Baba, of their Zayd, that there was like a memory at this point in time of, you know, where they came from, where they come from, Russia. So now this, this fellow's in his 20s, in his 30s, his worker. But his Baba Zayd is back in Russia, was a uh, chassid or from Yid. So he remembers shofar, Shoshana. Uh, the, the experience was, was moving enough that the, the workers unanimously decided to stop working, and they came back and they joined. Well, I can't say this for sure. They actually joined Rav Kook back in his shul to finish davening. I don't know. They stopped working. Rav Kook wrote about this. Rav Kook wrote about the incident. I have it here in the bottom, in the middle of page three, that a friendly word is effective. There's a different approaches as to what do you do when you're in a situation with, okay, we have a problem. We have Jews doing, uh, doing work on construction site in the middle of Yerushalayim on Rosh Hashanah. So if Cook wrote, a friendly word is effective. An expression of comradeship, respect, will often bring others close. Let us not forsake the good and straight path that is illuminated with love and goodwill and peace and friendship. That's the path we have to take. Goodwill, friendship, peace, love. We must break down the wall that divides brothers and speak heart to heart and soul to soul. Right? What's that wall he's referring to? As, as in many communities... And again, there's, there's no right or wrong here. They're just different approaches. The religious community wanted to build a wall and say, Feh, they're a threat. They're a threat to our children. They're a threat to our way of life. Build a wall and, and, and what do we want us to do? And that's an approach. It's always been an approach in Jewish life. So if Cook was saying, here, we're back. This is part of a redemptive process. This is not just the uh, maskilim uh, of, of Russia. We're in Eretz Yisrael, and this is the future. This is the redemptive process. There can't be a wall. Speak heart to heart. And soul to soul in our words will certainly be held, be heard. Listen to how he concludes. These children of ours, meaning he's referring to the secular Jews, will suddenly raise themselves up, and they will crown their powerful aspiration to build the land and the nation with the eternal ideals of sublime holiness. I want, to repeat, I want to express again what he's saying here. He's saying, they think they're here to build the land. 
They think they're here to create a utopia. They think they're here for socialist ideals and they've run from wherever they are. That's what they think. And if you ask them, they would say that. And Rav Cook says, no, I'm telling you why you're here. They're going to one day crown their aspirations of building the land. They're going to crown those aspirations with the eternal ideals of holiness. If he would say, if Rav Kook would have said that to those Jews themselves, they would have looked at him and they would have said, you're crazy, that's not why we're here. We have no interest in holiness. We're not waiting to g- leave us alone. Rav Kook said, no, 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 this is the mission you're serving. So the religious said to Rav Kook, you're crazy. The actual secular Jew said to Rav Kook, you're crazy. And he said, let them build. Let them build, break down the walls, and you'll see eventually this beautiful uh, flowering. Now, another story that I want to share. Um, Pol Mizrahi was established in 1922. So this was for the workers. The, the land was filled with workers. You think there's a lot of construction going on now when you go to Israel. So there was a lot of construction going on for, for many, many years. They're, they're, the workers were there, and they're, they're working with this manual labor. Right now, it's a high-tech place. If you were a worker in 1920s in the land of Palestine, you were doing manual labor. That's what you were doing. You were building. You were draining swamps and building. And so there were a lot of soup kitchens. The Histadrut had set up all sorts of kitchens where the, where the workers could, uh, could eat, but they weren't kosher. They weren't kosher, they weren't Shomer Shabbos. So Mizrahi set up a, 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 a from Shomer Shabbos a kosher kitchen for workers where they sold food at basically a cost to, for the low-income workers to be able to get a good hot meal, uh, some meat. And uh, they ran into a problem. They ran into a problem because the nine days came one summer. And the nine days, there's no meat. Can't have meat during the nine days. Now, in, in our modern day, so the nine days is not, even though there are many people who would disagree with me, they're like, yeah, I have to have meat. It's not such a problem to come up with alternative meals in our, uh, we're, we're a little bit uh, pampered and indulged and we can come up with uh, lots of different meals. They were sort of stuck. You know, they didn't, if you didn't have your, the, whatever the meat staples were, where are they going to get the hearty meal, the protein? They didn't know what to do. But it was the nine days. So the group that was running this kosher soup kitchen basically said, we just need to close up for the nine days. Like, I, I, there's, no, there's no way for us to, at a normal cost, be able to provide a, a nutritious meal without meat. So forget it. Let's just close up. There was one Jew who refused uh, to give up, a Jew by the name of Avram Mavrich. So he said, you know what? Let's go to the chief rabbinate. Let's go to Rav Cook. Let's go to the office of the rabbinate. Maybe there's a solution that we could figure this out. So nobody even wanted to come with him. He goes to the office. And, uh, you know, the rabbis are in a meeting, they're busy, so the secretary doesn't let him in to, to speak with anyone. He's persistent, he won't go away, he's a Jew, you know, Jews are fighting, now Jews are Jews. She's saying, you can't, he's saying, you know, you can't get me out of here. And eventually he gets one of the rabbanim. He gets one of the rabbanim and says, uh, explains him the problem. So, uh, Rabbi Weber was his name. So, this Rabbi Weber says, you know, why don't you make a seum every night? Make a seum, and if somebody finishes a mesechta, you make a seum, you have your meat meal. So he said, Avram says, oh, that's a beautiful idea. It's already the nine days. Like, well, I, who's learning? Uh, I don't know anyone. I can't. It's not going to happen. So Rav says, you know, give me a second. He goes to speak to Rav Cook. So uh, Rav Cook hears the problem. He brings, uh, he says, okay, Newt, tell me the problem. Rav Cook says to him, tell me, if you close up, if you close up, will there be many of the workers who are currently eating at your place, will they go to the non-kosher offices instead? So he said, for sure, we know, we know that they do. That's why we opened up. 
He said there's a percentage of actual from Shomer Shabbos, they're not going to eat non-kosher, but a great number of the people who come to us, if we weren't open, for sure they would go to the, the non-kosher options. Skurf Kuk said to him, you're allowed to stay open on the nine days. Not only are you allowed to stay open on the nine days, you can serve everyone meat, those who would and those who wouldn't otherwise go to a non-kosher. Everyone's allowed because the fact that when you're open, Jews who would have otherwise eaten non-kosher are now going to eat kosher, this is a su'udas mitzvah. This is like a it's a joyous occasion. It's a mitzvah for you to be open, to be able to provide kosher meat for these Jews. And therefore, the whole group become. So there are those who, like over the years, have gone back to try to explain from a halachic perspective how we could say that. So for the, for the Jews who otherwise would have eaten non-kosher, for sure they should eat. Better to eat meat during the nine days that's kosher than eat non-kosher meat. There's no crap. But even a Jew who otherwise wouldn't, to be part of such a meal... Rav Cook said, this is a Sudas Mitzvah that we're taking workers who would have otherwise not be eating kosher, and they're eating the whole experience, just like if you make a seam. One person makes a seam and everybody eats meat, same thing. One Jew who otherwise would be eating non-kosher is eating kosher. It's a joyous celebration for everybody. And Rav Cook kept it open and uh, gave everybody just, uh, uh, just an anecdote of the, the way that he addressed the, the era of the time that he was in. Um, <coughs> as far as that goes. Okay, one more, uh, one more establishment that he was involved in was the, on the bottom of page one, the establishment of the Merkas Harav Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Uh, this was established, he had a, a vision. He wanted to create a new yeshiva. Now, this, the concept of yeshiva was an old concept already by this point in time. But he wanted a new yeshiva curriculum that was going to integrate the Talmudic, the traditional Talmudic studies, which is what all the yeshivas had been built on at that point in time. But together with Jewish philosophy, together with the study of Tanakh, he originally had Jewish history and geography and literature. Those three things never actually ended up happening. Even in his yeshiva, they never took history or geography. But it would include philosophy and it would be a Zionistic Organization. It would not be just a traditional yeshiva, which they learned Gemara all day, but it was going to be in Yerushalayim with this vision uh, that he had. The official name of the yeshiva was the Central Universal Yeshiva, which reflected his vision that it was going to be a central national religious Zionist institution for the spiritual revitalization of the Jewish people. And it's, uh, it was the first, first Zionist yeshiva of its kind, and still today is the most prominent um, of its kind um, in Yerushalayim. And this was, it took many, many years for the yeshiva to become what he wanted to become, and one can still debate, but that, that is the yeshiva, still Merkaz Haraz, that ha, Harav that has his stamp and his flavor uh, um, on it. Um, I do as well. Let's talk a little bit about um, one of the other major uh, accomplishments of the era and one of the major controversies that uh, embroiled Rav, Rav Cook specifically in it, and that is Hebrew University, the establishment of Hebrew University. The Hebrew University was a long dream, an old dream of the early Zionists. Uh, as early as 1884, it was already proposed um, at the uh, Katowice uh, conference of the Chovavetzian. Remember, we discussed the Chovavetzian, which was the organization even before uh, the modern concept of Zionism and Herzl of uh, those who are the lovers of Zion. They already established such an idea in 1884 that there should be such a university. It was uh, addressed as well by uh, Herman uh, Shapira at the first Zionist Congress of 1897. And then 20 years later, in 1918, the cornerstone for the university was, uh, was laid. And seven years later, it took a, long, a lot of construction. Seven years later, April 1st, 1925, the 
university opens, the official opening date of the university in a gala affair uh, between 6,000 and 7,000 people were estimated to have attended, which was a massive number. There were only about 60,000 Jews in the land of Palestine at the time, and it's estimated almost 10% of them are at this uh, major, uh, major event. It was attended by uh, all the leading uh, figures in the Jewish world, distinguished scholars, public figures, British dignitaries, including the uh, chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth, uh, Rabbi Dr. Joseph Herman Hertz was there. Lord Balfour himself was there at the opening of the uh, Hebrew University. Uh, Lord Allenby, who was the general of the British Army, who successfully uh, defeated the Ottomans uh, during World War I. Sir Herbert Samuel, who was the first commissioner uh, placed in charge of the land of Palestine, who was a Jew. We spoke about him a couple weeks ago as well. And Rav Cook attends as well. So this is the event, the opening of Hebrew University. The first board of governors of the Hebrew University included none other than Albert Einstein, Sigmund Freud, Martin Buber, and Chaim Weizmann. This, is a, this was a crowning achievement of the early Zionist movement to open up a university in Jerusalem that would become a world-class university. Now today, Again, a hundred years, almost a hundred years from its opening, uh, the university has five affiliated teaching hospitals, more than a hundred research centers, 315 academic departments. As of 2018, a third of all doctoral candidates in Israel were studying at the Hebrew University. Four of Israel's prime ministers are alumni of the Hebrew University, as are 15 Nobel Prize winners. So it, it has become quite a world-class University, and when they were able to open it up back in 1925, this is again still 23 years pre-state, this is a crowning achievement. It's worth just noting over and over again how much of the groundwork for the state is being laid in these early years, even though it's not till 1948. When the state is born, it's not like a, a, a desert. They have, it has been built. The early Zionists put in blood, tears, sweat, blood, you name it, to build and all of these institutions becoming institutions where everything was in place for when uh, the declaration would happen. And this was one of the crowning achievements. Now there are two major, I don't call them controversies, uh, conflicts involved in the founding of this particular university. One was within the university world, and one is within the Jewish religious world uh, as it looks at this university. So within the, within the university, there was a major, major debate about what language would the university teach in? This is a major, it's fascinating to look back in history at decisions that are made. We are a little bit sensitive to language issues here in, uh, in Montreal. We know that it's a big deal to a lot of people. So this was a major, major ordeal for the scholars and uh, people who are invested in the university. What language should we teach in? The Judaic classes were gonna be taught in Hebrew. That was clear. The question is, what about all of the secular? What about all the sciences, all the math, the history? What should we? So the debate raged as follows. Some said it needs to be in a German or Arabic language because if you wanna become a world-class university, you have to teach in the language of the top-notch professors. How are you going to draw professors to want to come and teach in Hebrew University if you're teaching classes in Hebrew and the language itself doesn't even have words for some of the concepts yet? And certainly the professors don't speak that language. It can never develop into what a world-class place unless we speak the language of Germany 
and we'll do a little bit of Arabic because after all, that was the majority language of the time and there was a major push to have that as the language. What won the day, and it's amazing to think about certain decisions that are made as they influence like major uh, organizations in the history of the land, Hebrew won the day. The Zionists who were so invested in developing this land as a new Jewish Hebrew land, the language of Hebrew was, I wouldn't necessarily say a religion, but pretty close to it as it was being developed, and that carried the day. The idea of creating it in Hebrew, and that's what we see today. It is, there are, you could, of course, take classes in English, but it is a Hebrew university in which the primary language is Hebrew, and it has become this world-class organization. That was just one of the major historical uh, debates as to its, uh, as to its uh, founding. The second major controversy surrounded the Jewish world, and that is, how do we relate to this concept of a university? Now, again, we're living in 2021, and Yeshiva University exists just down the highway a little bit, and it's a, an accepted part of the modern Orthodox world for sure that there's such a thing called a Jewish university. Like, of course. That was not always an of course in the religious world of the Jewish people. And in fact, until Yeshiva University came, there was no such thing like that in, in the States. And in Israel, here you have this idea of Hebrew University, which was not a religious organization. They had no intention whatsoever to be a religious organization. It was just a Hebrew university. It was a Jewish place that was going to teach, amongst other things, besides for philosophy and science and math and some Judaic studies classes, Bible criticism was one of the classes that was going to be taught because you can't be a world-class organization, a world-class university, without teaching Bible criticism. Bible criticism, biblical criticism, is one of the classic aspects of, of fear of herit heretical belief. You're, are you going to teach that in Hebrew University? In Yerushalayim, we're going to have a course officially sanctioned? This was not the kind of uh, opening of a university that the religious community had any interest in. It was another example of the secular uh, Zionists coming in, introducing non-Jewish ideas. We have yeshivas. That's what we have. A university that teaches Bible criticism. What does this have to do? This is a disaster for the Jewish students who are going to go. Why would we ever support that? Well, the university invited Rav Kook as the chief rabbi to deliver the invocation. And Rav Kook accepted. Rav Kook went. And that in itself was a bold decision, which was not looked upon with favor from anyone in the religious community. And two things come out of this. Number one, not only was it a bold decision to go, what he went and the speech that he delivered was even more courageous, but as is often the case, a tremendous lesson in life, the fact that he went was going to override whatever it was that he actually said when he was there. Meaning the words that you say can be forgotten, can be lost, can be misconstrued. At the end of the day, you went. And therefore you have to deal with the fact that you were there and sometimes the action speaks louder than words. His words were actually very clear and very powerful and they were misconstrued and misquoted, not just in 1925, literally until today. What happened is as follows. He went and he delivered a speech and he delivered a courageous, powerful speech 
in which he railed against the idea of a secular university that was going to in some way influence the Jewish people. The only way that the Jewish people are going to be influenced is going to be through a life of Torah and observance. And he saw in this institution the beginning of that process and it will only succeed, he said, if it's in conjunction with the regular Torah learning that takes place in a yeshiva. And he painted a whole, it was a, a speech with many, many quotes and references, but it was all about putting the university in its place in relationship to the yeshiva, the concept of the yeshiva, that's really the true scholarship of the Jewish people. Which is a bold speech to make in front of a very large crowd celebrating the opening of, an or- of a university to basically say it's really all about the yeshiva. He concluded his speech with the yearning for the redemption, as he always did, and the yearning of Jewish education taking its place, because it's from Zion, which we're now back in the land of Zion. Will Torah eventually come out of? And that's why it, everything needs to be based on Torah study. And that was his main thing. He, he railed against Bible criticism. He was very clear in his speech. But the fact that he concluded it with He was quoted as saying, This university is the fulfillment of the Pasuk. That from Zion, look at the Torah that's coming out and that this university is the embodiment of that. And that was the quote that came out numerous times from the speech. We have the actual record of his speech. He wrote numerous letters to Rabbanim all over the world explaining what he actually did say and didn't say. But it's like one of those things, like once the cat's out of the bag, that Rev, Rev Cook said, about the university. That this is going to be the new bastion of Torah coming from the university, and it's like you, you can't ever take it back. And literally until today, if you Google, you know, Rav Cook, Hebrew University, there are articles from recent times still saying, and Rav Cook said about the university where they teach Bible criticism, that's not what he said, but it left its mark. But the idea of, the idea of, uh, a university, a Jewish university, was one of the major institutions of this period of time, the 1920s. Um, that would, of course, continue to influence the development of the land and uh, Palestine and the new state of Israel eventually coming up. Um, one last piece on, uh, on immigration. The, the years, you know, these years from 23 to 29 were relatively quiet as, uh, as opposed to what's coming up uh, and what was in the, the, of course, the mid-1900s with World War I. Um, a lot of that had to do with an actual drop in Jewish immigration from 1926 to 1928, meaning there were more Jews that left than came during that period of time. There was an economic depression and people couldn't make it. And so there were more people um, who, who left. In 1927, for example, literally there were more immigrants out than uh, uh, those who emigrated out than those who immigrated in. And in 1928, the total net Jewish immigration was 10 people from, 19, well, from between those who left and those who So there were periods of time where it was not a steady flow of Jews in. And the Arabs basically, since that was their main concern, the entire decade was about uh, having children, and buying land, bringing Jews in, whether through birth or through moving. And the Arab and Jews has been in a uh, 100-year race, so to speak, to buy land and to populate the land. And so for those couple of years, it was relatively quiet. And that, of course, ended in 1929, as we spoke about a little bit uh, last week already in the pogroms of Yushalayim and of Hebron. One last story uh, for tonight. 
Um, a beautiful story uh, that has, it really, can, this story continued for a number of, number of years, and that is the, the story of the, uh, the Kotel. The story of the Kotel. Already um, in 1922, this was a big issue. We mentioned last week already uh, uh, the Hajamin al-Husseini, who was appointed the Mufti of uh, Yerushalayim. And one of the many things that he really campaigned about was for the Kotel to remain in Arab hands. And that it belongs to us, we're in control. By our good graces, we'll allow Jews to daven here. But maybe, but it's really ours. And that's the only way that it's going to be. And in uh, 1922, the British, again, who were caught in the middle, they had made promises to the Jews, they made promises to the Arabs, and really all they wanted to do was their own interests. So they really didn't, weren't interested in either one of those two sides other than keeping the peace and making sure that their own interests were furthered. In 1922, they issued a ban against placing benches near the Kotel. That was one of, you know, you didn't want Jews to have a place to sit. So if you can't sit, so how long are you going to stay if you can't sit? So, so they removed all the benches from the Kotel area. And in uh, 1928, um, and this, is, this begins a, a, a long period, the, the British officers interrupted Yom Kippur and removed the Mechitza. So in order for the Jews to die, they placed a Mechitza. So they tore the Mechitzas down. They literally came in the middle of Yom Kippur and they took down the Mechitzas which you can imagine caused a ruckus for the Jews that were davening. That story will continue all the way through Menachem Begin in 1943, where there was still a constant issue at the Kotel as between the British and the Arabs and the Jews. The Jews who were insisting on davening, the Arabs who refused to let them, and the British who were trying to navigate, and they would not allow chauffeur blowing, they would allow mechitzas, not allow benches. There was a, it was a whole to do. That story continues. But in 1928... In 1928, they took down the Mechitza. The Arabs, uh, the riots begin in 1929, uh, which again is the whole story unto itself, both in Yerushalayim and in Hebron. And a few months later, after the riots, the, um, the, 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 the British, the British um, appoint a Kotel commission to figure out ownership of the Kotel. That was the goal of this particular, it was set up actually by the League of Nations, excuse me. They dispatched a committee to Israel to clarify ownership of the Western Wall because the Arabs were claiming to be the rightful owners, not only of the Temple Mount, but of the Kotel as well. And they didn't want to have any agreement um, that would allow the Jews to, uh, to pray or to have any say uh, in the matter. And Rav Kook was called to testify before this commission, this United League of Nations commission, on determining the ownership of the Kotel. And Rav Cook said, as was quoted with deep emotion, what exactly do you mean, he said to the commission, that you are planning on deciding who owns the Kotel? It's not the League of Nations that has the rights to decide ownership of the wall. Who gave you permission to make that decision? And he quoted from the first Rashi in all of Chumash. Rashi said, the whole world belongs to the Creator. The Creator gave it to whomever He chose when He saw fit. He took it from whoever He saw fit. It's, the, it's God's world. You, the High Commission of the League of Nations, don't have the right to decide who owns the Kotel. The Kotel is ours and it has always been ours. And we reject this concept of your deciding. So the chairman of the commission said, with all due respect... My dear rabbi, it has been several thousand years since the Jews have been in control of the Temple Mount. So why are you giving us such a hard time in deciding who has ownership over this? You haven't been here. It has not been in Jewish hands. It's been under the Ottomans and the Turks and now the Arabs and now the British. So we're going to decide who it is. Leave us alone. What right do you have to, why are you fighting us on this? 
So Rav Kook gave him a little halachic discussion about the concept of ownership and yeush. Yeush means to give up hope. If somebody steals a piece of land from someone else and the owner gives up hope of being able to recover it, so then it's considered he lost it. He's no longer in physical possession of it and he's given up hope of ever giving, getting it back. But, said Rav Kook, if, a, if an owner is not misyaish, he does not ever give up hope, and he protests regularly and says, so-and-so stole my land, so-and-so stole my car, and I'm protesting, I'm not giving up, I'm not in possession of it, but I protest regularly and say, that's mine. So if Cook says in Jewish law, you never lose possession. It's stolen goods, it's mine, and I'm protesting. He says the Jewish people have never given up hope on returning to our land, on returning to our temple to rebuild it. So it's true, it's been 2,000 years since we've been officially in charge, but it's ours, it always has been, and it always will be, and we do not give up hope, and therefore, he said, we reject the entire, any deal, there were a bunch of people who were you know, pressuring, you know, just, just give in what they wanted Rav Cook to do, what the, 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 the people wanted Rav Cook to do was to give in on that the Arabs own it, if the Arabs will give back in return, that the Jews can pray. So just acknowledge, tell, tell the commission that you'll agree that the Arabs own it, that they're the rightful owners, on condition that they'll give us permission to pray. And Rav Kook said, never. I will not acknowledge to any official commission by anybody that the Arabs have, are the official owners of the Kotel. It is ours and will always be ours. We might not be in control of it, but we will never stop protesting that it is indeed ours. And eventually that whole commission fell apart, like many other things in, in history of, uh, of third, external third parties trying to figure out a way to make peace between the Jews and the Arabs in the land of Israel. It's not really a uh, successful endeavor. That too fell apart. And it, there's a, that issue of the Kotel will be an ongoing issue. We'll, get to, we'll, we'll discuss that as we go through the 30s, all the way into the 40s, was an ongoing issue. Um, again, as I mentioned, even to Menachem Begin's time already, in the early 40s was still going on, but it started in 1928, 1929, even before that, 1922 already. Um, so those are just some of the uh, anecdotes, some of the aspects of that which was going on during the 1920s. Many of the things which were created then, Hebrew University, the idea of the chief rabbinate, Merkaz Harav, the yeshiva, all of these things still continue to play a role in the land of Israel today, and it really began uh, during this particular time. So we'll continue. Uh, the rest of the Jewish world in the 1920s was in total chaos in uh, the years, uh, the decade after World War I, but these are some of the things going on and developing in the land of Israel. I'll look forward to seeing you all uh, next week as we continue uh, our discussions.